talking about concepts that children can learn. Let's talk about some that they have difficulty learning. Most children have a difficult time, especially in the early stages of their life, to understand sarcasm. You ever try to be sarcastic with a four-year-old? They're so confused. They don't really understand because they take everything so literal, right? It's one thing that children have a difficult time understanding. Another one is this, the difference between past and future. And for us adults, it's so simple, the difference between the past and the future. But anytime I speak with my four-year-olds, I recognize that they really have a difficult time. They'll say, do you remember tomorrow when we went to this place? Sarcasm, past and future. There's a dozens and dozens of concepts that are somewhat elementary to us, and yet at the same time, it's not so elementary for our children. One of them is this idea of discipline. Discipline. I want you to finish this statement if you heard it. This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. We've, many of us have heard that sort of a statement, and you know, as a kid, maybe you're a, a witty child, and you think, well, I tell you what, dad, mom, let's go ahead and swap roles, and I'll take the burden for you. Allow me to execute discipline, right? Discipline is a challenging thing for a child to understand. Trying to wonder what's going on in the heart. What are the motivations of our parents when they're disciplining us? What's the goal? What's the purpose? Where does all of this end? We've got lots of questions as, children's, as children and even as adults today, we're still likely asking questions about discipline. And if that's you, then you're in luck because that's the whole idea. That's the theme of the sermon and the text this morning. And so would you follow along in your copy of God's Word in the book of Hebrews chapter 12? We'll look specifically this morning at verses 3 to 11. So chapter 12, verse 3 to 11. If you're new to reading the Bible, you can literally open up in that black hardback Bible that's, the, that's right in front of you. And you can open up to page 1196. And right there under that big 12, so 1196, right there at the top of the page, there's a 12. And if you'll just look underneath that 12 to where it says, do not grow weary, verse 3. We'll read there down to verse 11. And so here we go. Consider him, which is Jesus, who endured from sinners <clears throat> such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And here's a pivotal, a pivotal verse here. There's a pivotal conjunction here. And you have not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. Or, and have you forgotten? Rhetorical question here. And he's referencing Proverbs 3, 11 to 12. And so those two verses there, 5 and 6, are, are quoting an Old Testament psalm or, or proverb. And that's why it's in, indented like it is. And it says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. That's important. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pause and ask God to bless this reading of his word. Father, we submit to you now 
We lay our minds and our hearts before you, Father, even our hands, and we ask that you would allow us to see Jesus more clearly. Would you let us consider him? And Father, would you let us consider you and the discipline that you give to us? Would we think rightly about it as a result of us hearing your word preached? And we ask this in your name. Amen. If that's your desire, I want you to ask, just say it right now, God bless the reading of your word. If you really mean that, I believe that he will. Let's, let's see what he does. This idea of discipline, discipline. Apart from that word uh, being mentioned <clears throat> four times, both in 5, 7, 8, and 11 there in chapter 12, it's only mentioned two other times in the entire New Testament. Once in uh, Ephesians chapter 6 where it's referencing a father training his children. And then again in 2 Timothy chapter 3 where Uh, The Apostle Paul says that Scripture is useful for training, for disciplining us in righteousness. When we think of the word discipline, often many of us uh, will feel this little bit of fear in our stomachs, maybe wondering, uh, is this only negative? And discipline is not just negative. I've got a a definition for you today, and I sort of came up with it myself as a hodgepodge, but I I think it'd be helpful for us, and it's certainly in line with what the Scriptures teach us. And so let's look on the screen here. Discipline is teaching the right way to behave by using both positive and negative reinforcement. Discipline is teaching the right way to behave by using both positive and negative reinforcement. Think about this idea that discipline in the English language is closely related to the word disciple. Disciple. Jesus had many disciples when he walked this earth, and particularly he had 12 disciples whom he called apostles, but they were disciples. They were being trained by Jesus, both positively and negatively reinforced in the way that they should go raising his voice and correcting Peter, and at other times encouraging and challenging, strengthening his disciples along with the greater crowd. He trained them on how they were to act, and he even said, I'm getting ready to leave, and when I leave, I'm going to send a comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and he's going to guide you. He's going to cause you to remember the things that I trained you on. Disciple, discipline, It's not all negative. It is the topic of our sermon, our passage this morning. Now, if you were following along, if this is your first week, you're like, well, that sounds great. Let's talk about discipline. But if you've been following along, you've been part of this sermon series in Hebrews as we just faithfully, week after week, take the next few verses, you might be saying, hey, wait a minute. I thought the whole context of this book was about the Hebrew church, the early Christians, really struggling because they were facing persecution. And so they started following Jesus. Uh, they got the WWJD bracelet on. They started going to church on a regular, uh, regular, uh, 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 just regularly throughout the week and gathering with the saints. And everything was great. It was amazing. They were learning. They were growing. And they felt at one with the Lord. And then all of a sudden, persecution started happening. People that were Christians were suffering because of their faith. Not just suffering disconnected from their faith, but because of their faith. Some of them even losing their homes. You remember this. And this book is really sort of targeting those people, those early Christians in the first century saying, hey, I know it's tough, but don't give up. Keep looking at Jesus. It's going to be worth it all in the end. So there's this persecution that they're facing. Don't stop. Don't back down. Don't give up. Keep looking to Jesus. Look past these difficult circumstances. And then all of a sudden we run across this, and have you forgotten the discipline of the Lord? What's the connection between the discipline of the Lord and the difficulties that you face on a regular basis at the hands of potentially evil people? In order for us to talk about discipline, we have to understand that the connection between persecution and discipline is the sovereignty of God. What does that mean, the sovereignty of God? Well, Romans 8, 28, we've referenced it many times in this study. Romans 8, verse 28 says this, and we know, Christians, and we know 
that for those who love God, for those who call God Father, for those who have come to God through Jesus the Son, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a simple teaching, and yet it's so profound that God uses even the persecution at the hands of evil people, the plundering of your property, the seizing of your real estate to discipline you in positive ways. I had a friend when I lived in Tennessee, and sometimes we'd take breaks together, and he'd open up his lunchbox, and uh, his name was Forrest, and Forrest would uh, pack his lunchbox there, and he would open it up in front of me, and at break time, he would pull out an apple, and to watch Forrest eat an apple was a sight to behold. Forrest, big, big teeth, big mouth, big apple, he would take bite after bite after bite, and I don't know about you, but like when I get close to the center of the apple, I know, ding, done. It's time to throw that into the garbage can, but not for Forrest. Forrest would continue to work that apple. He would eat all the way down to the end of it, and where those little bitty leaves are kind of, you know, hiding little bugs and all sorts of stuff and dirt. And when he got to that point, he had nibbled it all the way down to the cartilage of that apple, and he would just take a bite off that bottom end of it. And then he would just continue to chew all the way up until he got to the stem. And you'd say, did he eat the stem as well? No, he didn't eat the stem, but he did use the stem to pick his teeth. (laughs) He said, nothing in this apple will be wasted. Now, when God looks at our lives and he looks at the difficulties that we are experiencing at the hands of evil people and even our own evil consequences for our sin, God looks at it as if, Forrest is looking at his apple saying, I'm going to use every single bit of this suffering for their good. I'm going to shape them by it. They need to be changed. They need to understand. They need to move. They need to know how to behave in, these, in each and every circumstance. And God says, I will waste nothing. And he's the sort of person that can actually accomplish that. Do you understand that? We all would look at the difficulties around us and say, I don't want to waste a good crisis, and yet we can't turn everything around for our good. And yet God can. And not only does he have the ability, but he promises that he will do that. There's all sorts of texts that I could give you this morning that we can see both in story and in teaching throughout the the, the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation where God is doing this very thing. He's taking the wicked actions of evil people and he's using them to shape, to discipline and to disciple his followers, his children. Constantly, Christians, we're constantly throughout the New Testament encouraged to look at our difficulties, to look at our persecution, and to think of them as cause for celebration. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18 say to do that. And James chapter 1, verse 2 and 4 says to do that. So boldly in James 1, it says that we're to count it all joy when we face suffering, when we face trials and temptations. What do we know? Well, we know God's intention of loving and training us can't be thwarted by the evil deeds of others. No, it can't be thwarted. Instead, it will be absorbed and repurposed for his aim, which is our shaping, our discipline, and ultimately our holiness. Now, our culture largely misunderstands these concepts both of the sovereignty of God and more specifically here, the discipline of God, the discipline of the Lord. We look at discipline and we think, well, this is is not a good thing. This isn't even really a needed thing. And if you are sort of influenced by culture today and you're thinking, hey, discipline is not a good thing, then I suggest for you that we need, you need a new definition of discipline. You need a biblical understanding of discipline. And if that's you this morning, again, you are in luck because I want to give you from this text six reflections concerning discipline. So if you're taking notes, write that down. Six reflections concerning discipline. 
Number one, we see it here in the text. Discipline is the task of a parent. Discipline is what parents do. Now, this passage is not an instruction for you parents on how to parent and discipline and disciple your children. It's actually about God disciplining and parenting and discipling and training his children. But we can look at God and we can see this is what God does. God is our father and God disciplines us. We as fathers and as mothers, we ought to discipline our children also. Look again at verse 7. It says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. We were, we were enduring persecution, but now it's discipline. He's saying the, the persecution is actually a form of discipline. Why? Well, God is treating you as sons. He's treating you as if you are his daughter. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That's a really bold statement. Real fathers really discipline Real fathers really disciple. Verse 8, it says, if you're left without discipline, in which we've all participated in some earthly sense, we've all participated. He said, if, you have, if you're not experiencing discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Spiritually speaking, he's saying that God always does his task. God always disciplines his children. Why? Because that is the purpose of a father. That's the purpose of a mother, to train our children. And not only do we see in this that it's the job of a parent, but it's also the need of the son. Everybody who is a child of God needs to be shaped by God. And so it's fitting that we have him as our father. Now remember, we're not actually talking about children or sons, physically speaking. We can learn a lot about how we are to parent because of reading and seeing what God does and how he treats his children. But this metaphor does teach us that Christians are imperfect people needing training outside of themselves. And left to their own devices, they will not mature properly. Christians, God has called our Father, and he disciplines all his children. I want to take a moment under this heading of this being the task of a parent, and I want to talk about motivation. And we're going to learn about God's motivation by, the, by way of transition here, though. Let's talk about our own motivation when we parent, when we discipline or disciple those around us. I want you to think about an instance in your life where whether you're a parent or not, you were called upon in some sense or you felt the obligation to discipline or to disciple or to train somebody in your care. What was your motivation for discipline? Maybe it was pride. Before you go to that public place, you say, hey, don't embarrass me. We've all heard that before. Shamefully, look at the ground. You've said it. What's our motivation there? It's pride. Or maybe because we were embarrassed, we revealed that ultimately our motivation for disciplining in a negative reinforcement way was because of our anger or maybe our vindication. I told you not to cross me, but you did. And so now you get the repercussions. Or maybe you're sometimes like me, which I'm all of these, but maybe you're a little bit like me and sometimes you, you just say, well, I don't actually discipline at all. I'm tired. I'm just too tired of discipline. Anybody that has more than one child knows that there is this building of work that's to be done. This building of exhaustion, we're, we're gung-ho in the very beginning. The first child, we'll make sure that they're right. And the second child, well, he's doing pretty good. The third child, eh, fourth child, we gave up. <laughs> we're tired. We're overwhelmed. Or maybe we just flat out feel powerless. And so we don't discipline at all, regardless of what it is. All of these are self-serving. 
And what we know about the motivation that God has in disciplining us is point number two, that discipline is a sign of God's love. Discipline is a sign of God's love. He loves us and so he doesn't get tired of disciplining us. He loves us and so he doesn't punish us in some way but says, I love you too much to let this slide. You're not gonna do this anymore. It's not good for you, it's not good for me, and I'm gonna discipline you. But ultimately, God's motivation is love. We see it clearly in the scripture. Look at verse six, chapter 12. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He disciplines the one he loves. And listen, he chastises. How did that word make it in the ESV, right? This isn't the King James Version. But he chastises every son whom he receives. He gives a spank and a whooping to every son whom he receives. But don't miss that first part. Anyone, any son that the Lord has, he disciplines them. His hand is in their life. His arm is around their shoulder. He's leading them this way and that way, and sometimes we are kicking and screaming. And yet he disciplines us. Many today believe that the various forms of discipline that we read about in Scripture and that we experienced behind the woodshed are archaic and evil. And I want to say, I want to tell you that there is a form of discipline or of abuse that parades around as if it's actually loving discipline, but it's not. Any time that you think you're disciplining, but you're actually motivated in that moment by some selfish reason, reason it is abuse. Do you hear that? Any time that you think you're disciplining, but you're actually working out of selfish motivation, be it pride, anger, vindication, or even anxiety and laziness, and just being tired and overwhelmed in those moments, it is abuse. And there are forms that are more heinous than others, and still yet, we never see that with God. Never once. God looks at us and in love says, I love you, my child, and I'm not going to leave you the way that you are. There's a part of the gospel that says that God loves us, and so many people accept that statement. The scriptures clearly give, it, give that to us. But there's another part of the gospel that says that God's going to change us, that God loves us too much to leave us just the way that we are, and that really runs headlong and clashes with what our culture says. And our culture says, you don't really need to change. You don't really need to, to change the way that you act or to change the way that you think. You're perfect just the way you are. And God says, that's ridiculous. I love you too much to leave you just the way that you are. I don't want to pre-preach the sermon for next week, but Hebrews 12, verse 14. Just skip down to that. Verse 14. A sort of instruction and outworking of some of the theology that we've been looking at, we see in verse 14, and it says very clearly that we're to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Think about that verse. We're to strive for holiness because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It's really quiet in here, right? Do you feel the weight of that? You say, well, I feel like I've got, I've got to do all the striving. No, the Lord is doing the striving alongside of you. And he's saying, I'm teaching you, and some of you are listening, and others of you are not. Some of us say, well, God, whenever you discipline me, it feels a lot like hatred. It feels a lot like rejection. It feels a lot like you don't love me. And God says, if I spared the rod, if I spared the discipline, 
I would demonstrate to you hatred. Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And God looks at us and he says, I love you and I'm gonna shape you. I'm gonna form you. I'm not gonna leave you alone. And the things that you're facing right now, I want you to think of them as me being present with you. And yes, it can be frustrating and annoying at times, but I want you to trust my heart. My motivation is love, and I'm here, and I'm guiding you. And so because God loves his children, he doesn't leave us alone. And because without holiness, no one will see the Lord he begins to shape us when we become his children. And so look at verse three, or uh, the point, point three up on the screen. Discipline is how God shapes us. Discipline is how God shapes us. Look at verse five. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. That word, Regard lightly. It implies ignoring the fact that there's any divine meaning in the discipline. Regarding lightly is saying, yeah, the thing that's happening in my life is not connected to the sovereign hand of God. The difficulties that I'm facing, the sick loved ones, my own sickness myself, my financial difficulties, my relational difficulties, all of these things are coming from the hand of God and the Proverbs say, referenced here in Hebrews 12 is, don't disconnect the sovereignty of God and his discipline and what you're facing right now. Don't ignore it. Don't despise it. Understand that you need training and that it's God's purpose and discipline that you be trained. You say, well, what does God actually accomplish through training? What did he accomplish for the first century Christians that were receiving this letter, this sermon in, of Hebrews? What, were they, what was God doing? Well, we don't know. But Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3 teach us that God uses difficulties and trials to bring us to a place of humility. And many of us, especially when we come to Christ, we struggle with that. We struggle with true humility. And, and God says, I resist the proud. I resist those who are filled with pride and arrogance. But I draw near to those who are humble. And God says, I love my children and I want to be with them. And so I'm going to teach them humility through their difficulties. And you say, I don't think I need any humility. Next, next thing that he teaches us is to seek God early, to seek him early. We see that through difficulties in Hosea 5, particularly in verse 15. God's teaching his people to seek him early. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, God is allowing difficulties to come into the life of the ones that he loves to cause them to depend on him. 2 Corinthians 1. He uses difficulty to teach obedience. Psalm 119, 71 says, it, it was good for me that I was afflicted because that's the way I learned obedience. Now, nobody in their right mind says, no child says, hey, I, I'm glad that I just got grounded felt really good. I'm glad that you didn't let me do that thing that I was supposed to do with my friends. I'm glad that you just gave me a spanking. Why? Because now I'm learning obedience. But the psalmist is saying, after the fact, my God, you have taught me obedience through these difficult things that I faced. Maybe he doesn't just teach you obedience, but maybe he's teaching you patience. I already referenced it, but here again, James chapter 1, it says, we're to rejoice when we encounter difficulties. Why? Because God is doing something. He's teaching us patience. He's teaching us patience. Now, some of you are beginning to be swayed or wooed to this idea of God disciplining you. And you say, well, he's a, that's what parents do. And 
God, God's trustworthy. He does it out of love, and he's accomplishing something in my life. He's shaping me, or that's what he would be doing. I, I want that. Well, good news. If you're a Christian this morning, point number four, observation from the text here, discipline is a promise. Discipline is a promise. It's not a matter of if God will discipline you, Christian. It's a matter of where he's disciplining you. It's not a matter of if he will discipline you. God does not abdicate his responsibility toward his children. He's not like some of the fathers that we've had that got tired or lazy or had their own self-absorbed ideas that they chased after. Any son of God, any daughter of God is now experiencing discipline. I want you to think about the original hearers of Hebrews. Again, I painted the picture. I won't develop it too much now. But they're so excited. Things are going well, throwing and going. It's exciting. The church is expanding. They're learning so much. Persecution comes upon them. And in that moment, you know what many of them are tempted to think? He forgot about us. Where is he now? We're in the middle of this battle. He told us to come into this battle. He told us to do this, and things were going great. Now it seems like we're losing and I don't understand that because I, I thought he said he would be with us at all times. I thought he said that he was going to use everything in our lives for his glory and for our good. And I just don't see it right now. Maybe you are able to relate this morning to what the Hebrews were probably experiencing. God, where are you? Are you, are you even here Well, remember what this text says. It says that God disciplines every son, every daughter whom he receives. That's a promise for you. Now, I want you to think about this. God doesn't treat everyone the same. God doesn't treat everyone the same. And not, just to illustrate that, they're not in here so I can talk about it. I got my kids that, are in, that were in the room just a moment ago, and I got some neighbor kids that are in the room just a moment ago. And I love them both a lot. But let me tell you something. I don't parent my kids the way that I do my neighbor kids. Why? Well, I love them, but they're not my children. And you're the same way. You're the exact same way. And in a sense, God, that helps us to see about God. We understand that, that God doesn't always discipline those who are not his children in the same way that he does his children. We say, well, why are they, why are, why are they seeming to get away with everything? And we, we don't get away with anything. Why, why is everything going so well for them but not for me? Because God's saying, those are my kids. You're my kids. And I'm going to discipline you. We'll let their daddy discipline them. And by the way, Satan doesn't discipline very well. When he's got you in his hands, he doesn't have much work to do. But once Jesus gets us in his hands, once the Father gets us, he says, I've got some work to do. Because you're my kids and I need to work on this. Now you say, aren't all Aren't all humans, aren't, aren't all people God's children? Well, in a physical sense, sure. Yes, he's our creator. Whether you believe in him or not, whether you have rebelled against him or not, or whether you submit, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Yes, in a physical sense, we are all creatures created in the image of God. And in that sense, physically, we are his children. But spiritually speaking, not all are God's children. We've got to get that out of our mind. We've got to think about that. Often I'll hear people say, well, aren't we all just God's children? First John chapter 2 helps me to understand that. No, we are not all God's children. First John chapter 2, been reading that with my D group. At least I am. Maybe I'm reading the wrong week. I think maybe I am. You were in John, weren't you? Anyway, I'm in First John 2. So there we go. By God's providence. And there I read, hey, we're not all children of God. What about John 3, the gospel of John? And Jesus speaks there and he says, hey, listen, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Your father right now is not the father that I call father. Later on, five chapters later, Jesus says in John chapter 8, verses 44 and 45, he speaks to somebody very, very bluntly. And he says, you are of your father, the devil. Can, can somebody really truly have 
God as their father and also the devil as their father? Of course not. And so it's possible that not everybody is a child of God. And and truly, we read in John 1 that only those who receive the message of Jesus can truly say, God is my Father. Only Christians, only those who have trusted in Christ, Jesus Christ. And those who are his children, God says, you need training. You need correction. You need discipline. And God has promised to do it. Remember there, verse 6, if you write in your Bible, I want you to underline this or circle it, and chastises every son whom he receives. Every single one. Now, implied in the quoted proverb and testified to by everyone that has ever been disciplined by their parent, we all would say, It's difficult to not be frustrated when we are disciplined and to not become angry when we're chastised. We probably all say that. And and, and some of the reason why we do that is because we weren't really disciplined or chastised out of love and according to knowledge and wisdom. And again, that's, that's abuse. But the truth of the matter is even true discipline Motivated by love, the work of a parent, it is always painful. And I'm not just talking about when you get the switch on your hind end. But anytime anybody lovingly is correcting you and saying, hey, I don't want you to go that way. Why? Because I said so. It's not good for you. I want you to trust me. In that moment, it's painful. It's difficult. It's frustrating. And that's the the fifth observation this morning. Discipline is painful. At least on its face, it's painful because it's saying, you're not enough. What you don't know enough. You, You need to trust me. You need to lean in on me. It's not demeaning. It's loving and inviting. And even if it's painful to the point of correction, learning a lesson the hard way, they say. But either way, discipline is painful. And we see that in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And so the point of this is not, again, parents, how to discipline your children. But I want you to see something here. If what you're doing to your child when you say it's discipline isn't somehow painful to them, it's not really discipline. That's what we read right here. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. When God our Father loves us, he disciplines us. And what does that mean according to verse 11? It means he painfully disciplines us. He leads us to a point in our life, to a situation, to an experience that is not pleasant in the immediate. Some of you say, well, I know that all too well. I'm well acquainted with grief with sorrow, with pain, with waiting, with longing. And I just wonder, is God really doing anything in my pain? And this, this, verse, this, this verse here, this whole passage is saying, yes, yes. He's disciplining you. He's shaping you. Why? Because he loves you. And that requires pain. I love what C.S. Lewis said. If you we look at the screen here. C.S. Lewis said this in one of his most powerful works. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasure. Whispers. He speaks to us in our conscience. But he shouts in our pains. And then he says, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, I don't recommend that we yell at our children, but we've all felt that notion at times where we say, hey, they didn't hear me at this point, and they didn't hear me at this point, and we say, we shout, don't do that. Get back from there. Don't touch that. Stay away from that. Come back over here. 
And while we do that imperfectly and impurely, as the scriptures say here, God never does that in any sort of a way that would be inconsistent with his love for us. And he shouts at us to rouse us, our deaf ears. And that megaphone that he uses is pain. But I love what it says about pain. Pain is so difficult, right? Because we oftentimes, when we're experiencing pain, we don't know how long it will last. I know I've stood beside people that were suffering. I know many of you have stood or knelt beside people who were suffering, maybe even on their deathbeds. And for them, they're so concerned about this pain and how long it will last. You know, when we're children and we get that little wound and we think, oh, this is so painful, and parents look at it and say, seriously? You know what's so difficult for them? They don't know how long it's going to last. They don't know. Is this the rest of their life? For the rest of my life, will I have this stinging pain all around my knee because the skin was just torn off of it by the blacktop? Man, that's, that's, that's tough. And for them, they say, I... I'm so afraid that this will be the rest of my life. Somebody on their deathbed is saying, I'm suffering right now, and I don't know how long this is going to last. Well, here's what we know about pain and, and God disciplining us. And even in intense moments of pain, we, we know that it doesn't last forever. Look at verse 11. It says, of pain, of discipline that leads to pain, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And here's the last observation for discipline. Number six, discipline is fruitful. Discipline is fruitful. The scriptures instruct God's children to think of suffering as a blessing. Again, I reference James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, 2 to 4. If you're taking notes, we won't visit there right now, but I would encourage you to, to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, to help substantiate this idea that discipline is fruitful. A friend of mine, and some of you may know him, just had a podcast released. The name of the podcast is Terminal. And it uh, tells the story of Richard Pope, who had felt called by God to plant a church. And so he begins to plant that church, and right before they publicly launch the church, uh, he finds out from his doctors that he is terminally ill, that uh, he knew he had cancer, but they were able to control it. But now at this point, they're saying, no, dude, you're, you're going to die. And you've got maybe, maybe four years, probably two years, maybe less than that. You don't have very long. And so this podcast, which I encourage you to find, it's called Terminal. It tells his story. He tells his story, and one of the things that he said in that is he reminded me in that podcast that in order to experience resurrection, we have to go through death. In order to experience resurrection, we have to experience death. And I love that he's got that sort of a perspective Just yesterday, I was at the funeral of our dear sister, Joan Kohler, who's gone on to be with the Lord, and Reverend Miller was performing that funeral, and I love what he said. He said, death is like a car. He said, death is like a car. I'm, I'm citing him, right? I'm not stealing this from him. I cited him. He says, death, death is a vehicle. It's, why? Because it's transportation. Death takes me from the Life I'm experiencing now, the discipline and the suffering and the pain, and it ushers me into the presence of God for all eternity. That is incredible perspective. 
And those are the, the big things, right? Dying, cancer, terminal illness. And yet, remember that pain is only present and unpleasant for a season. And in the end, it gives way to life. That's what we see here. There's no cross or there's no crown before the cross. There's no blessing before the suffering. Even Jesus himself, it was said of him that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus' mission in, the, in his life here on earth was to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's what he came to earth to do. He said, that's, I've got my eyes fixed on that, and that's joy in my heart, Jesus says. But I also know this, that I will not get to that point if I don't go through the cross. So discipline for us, Christian, is painful, but it doesn't end in pain. It ends in joy, and it ends in life. So with those, with those thoughts on discipline, I just want to ask you, when is the last time, and I really want you to think about this. You don't have to say anything out loud, but I want to ask you, when was the last time that you thanked God for his discipline? You say, that's ridiculous. Why would we thank God for his discipline? Because that's what parents do. Because discipline is love. Because God is faithful to do what he said he was going to do. And it's because it shapes us and we want to be shaped. We need to be shaped without holiness. We won't see God. And even though it's painful in the moment, we have this promise that at the other side, on the other side of the suffering and the discipline and the pain that we face, we have the joy set before us, Jesus himself. I want to just invite you into a time of reflection. I've got a few questions we're going to move through these quickly. I really, you can use these now. You can write them down. You can take a picture of them on the screen, and then you can maybe use them in life group or to talk with your kids and lead your family worship sometime this week. But I want to ask this first question. What type of student, what, what type of child are you? Are you the sort of child of God that's listening and learning from the Father? Are you saying, I know that you're doing something in my life, and I'm submitting to that? Or are you angry? Are you doubting? Are you indifferent? Are you crushed? What type of student are you? What type of child are you? I hope that as you contemplate that what the scriptures teach us about God the Father, that you'll be led away from anger and doubt and indifference and being crushed that you'll be present and you won't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Here's another question. Is God treating you as a son or daughter? When's the last time you were disciplined? And you say, well, does God only discipline through a whooping? Well, no, he doesn't. He uses everything in our lives to discipline us. But that promise can't be claimed for somebody who's not a Christian who's not truly placed their faith in Jesus. Some of you are satisfied right now with where you are. You came in here this morning and you're completely satisfied where you're at in your relationship with God and your relationship with others. My question following up with that under this idea of is God treating you as a son or daughter is to ask you, is God satisfied with where you're at? Again, now you say, well, are you being, this feels heavy and this feels like lots of law and no grace. Friends, we cannot expect anything good from God if we're not his children. And the, quite the opposite is true. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. And so listen, are you satisfied with where you're at? I can assure you that God, our Father, is not satisfied with where you're at. And so ask yourself, is God even treating me as a son or daughter? I said a moment ago, and I'll say it again, Satan doesn't need to chase those who are in his grip, and neither will the Father discipline those whom Satan has. But he will discipline those who are his. Here's another question. How have you been interpreting difficulties in your life? 
up until this point, how have you been interpreting difficulties? Have you been lightly regarding the discipline of the Lord, thinking, okay, what I'm facing right now has nothing to do with what God's doing in my life? Well, you're missing some things if that's you. You're missing the fact that God is sovereign. You're missing the fact that God is good. And you're missing the fact that you need shaping. You need holiness in your life. Holiness that you don't actually have yet in a practical sense. And God is using these difficulties in your life to shape you. So maybe some of you need to think through that. I know I do. Here's another question. Do you want God to be your father? Do you want God to be your father? Some of us here this morning would say, hey, I I know I have a biological father, but I never had a dad. That's sad. And some of you say, well, I had a dad, but he wasn't really present with me. He wasn't this sort of dad. And and some of you, you the rest of you would say, well, you know what? This isn't difficult for me to understand because my God, my dad was so good. My earthly father was so kind and he was a lot like this, what God says about himself here in Hebrews 12. And I know my dad wasn't perfect, but yeah, yeah, he was very close. He, he helped me to understand him. Well, maybe that's your testimony, but either way, I think all of us are looking at this explanation of God and his work in our lives and we're saying we want that. And this morning, you're not a Christian. I want to encourage you. I want to tell you that this can be yours too. That God also can be your father. Think of what Jesus said to Nicodemus that one night. He said, listen, you've already been born once, but you need to be born again. And what does he say? He says, "God, God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to give the world life. He says, anyone who believes in me will have everlasting life. Anyone who receives my testimony, my good news message, you can call God your father. Well, how do we do that? Well, we let Jesus be our king. We let Jesus rule us. We let Jesus be the one who gives us victory over sin and its consequences. And we let Jesus be the one who gives us direction in our lives. And if that's where you're at this morning, then if you want, if you want that, and God will be your father. Last question is, how do you respond to discipline? How do you respond to discipline? Again, just some guardrails quickly. Some of us might be tempted to say, void of the gospel, void of the good news that Jesus has done all the work that we need and that we can't make God love us any more or any less. Some of us, when we're disciplined, we're gonna say things like this. I guess I'm just not good enough for God. One of the saddest things I ever heard in my entire life was when a man said, I tried to follow Jesus for a long time. But in the end, I just knew I wasn't good enough. You're misunderstanding. If that's you this morning, you're you're misunderstanding the discipline of the Lord. He disciplines you because he loves you. And no, no, you're not good enough but he has promised to make you good. He has promised to work out that holiness in your life. And maybe some of you are saying, how can this possibly be loving? Well, again, just remember the opposite is of this discipline is abdication of responsibility or the fact that you're not even his child at all. As we close, I want to call your attention to verse three again. Some of you say, hey, Some of you students of the word are like, hey, you missed the most important part of this entire passage. We're going to get to it. Verse 3, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Consider him. Considering him is like looking unto Jesus. Considering him is loving his appearing. What does that mean again? It means Christians are saying, King Jesus is coming back and my whole life is orientated towards that moment when he returns. And so here's the main idea. 
Christian, you can endure the purposeful, loving discipline of our Heavenly Father by considering Jesus. Christian, you can endure the purposeful, loving discipline of our Heavenly Father by considering Jesus. Now, practically, what would that look like? Very quickly. Consider him. What does it look like to consider him? Well, the, the, the context is suffering. The context is his passion. Not his loves, but his suffering is what's meant by passion. And we see in his passion, we see a few things. First, we see the sovereignty of God utilizing the evil intentions of sinful men. Now, this isn't something new today. This is something we've already covered. But when we consider Jesus, we see the sovereignty of God utilizing the evil intentions of sinful men. Now, what did those who crucified Jesus and demanded his blood, his death on the cross, what were their intentions? Evil. Evil. And yet for God, what do we see? Well, we see God is not thwarted. His purposes for us and, and in Christ were not messed up or distracted. And yet God says, I'll take the evil intentions of man and I'll take them and I'll bring about good in the life of my son and in the life of my children. Jesus suffered at the hand of an evil enemy. And the cross reminds us that God the Father is doing something. Even Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his humanity, he's saying, I don't know what you're doing. Does this even need to happen? Nevertheless, I trust you that you're good and that you'll use these evil intentions to bring about much good. That's what the cross teaches us. Another thing that it teaches us is, as we consider him, as we consider Jesus, is that the faith of Jesus the Son in the midst that, that, that Jesus has faith in the, in the midst of the worst kind of suffering. And that's what he's really alluding to in verse 3. You've never suffered like Jesus. And you say, well, some of you would say, well, the, the, the worst way to die is not really the cross. There are other ways. People have gotten much more creative over the years than to, to kill somebody on a cross. And that may be true, humanly speaking. But the cross is not the worst part of what Jesus endured. The cross is only a symbol of God's, God the Father, removing his presence from Jesus. It's only a, a symbol of the fact that he had been abandoned in some sense by his Father. And that, my friends, is the worst type of pain. And we know a little bit about that because we've, some of us have been wrongly accused before. And the consequences of being wrongly accused allowed us to be ostracized and shamed. And in some small way, that is a bit of what Jesus was facing in this moment. And yet he re remains faithful. And the last thing that we see from observing Jesus is the, the absolution of all the sin of those who trust in Jesus. When we consider Jesus, when we consider him, here's what we see. We see that God is not disciplining us to punish us. We see that God is not disciplining us because he hates us. He's not disciplining us because of his wrath. No, all of that wrath that he had for the rebels that we are was absolved, was satisfied, was swallowed up in the work of Jesus on the cross. And so what does that mean for us? That means that when we face hardship, we say, God, do you hate me? And the preacher says, no, look to Jesus, consider Jesus. What do you see when you consider Jesus? I see that he loves me. I see that he uses very difficult, painful, evil things for my good and for his glory. And I see faithfulness, I see trusting, I see an example in Jesus Christ. And in that moment, we have courage to continue moving forward. There's an old proverb, and I think it's got to be rooted in history of a, of a Persian rug maker who had this large scaffold, and he would make these large rugs on top, and 
of the scaffolding that would drape across and he would call down to his, his, uh, his gophers, go for this, go for, some, go for some dark maroon, go for some dark black, go for some dark brown. And he had spent so much time, this, this rug maker with the light and bright colors and they could only see underneath the scaffolding all the, the strings hanging down of this color and that color. But now he's gone into the shadowing, he's gone into the, the darkening and the outlining and he keeps calling for these dark colors that for us symbolize suffering and persecution and pain. And these workers are thinking, well, what is he doing to this masterpiece? He's likely destroying it with all these dark colors. And finally at the end, toward the end, he calls for his, his helpers to come up on the scaffold. And From the underside, they could only see these dangling strings that were penetrating and perforating all the beauty and the brightness. And when they get to the top, they're able to see the glory that was brought about through all this darkness. Church, Christian, you can endure the purposeful, loving discipline of our Heavenly Father by considering Jesus. Let's pray.